It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Braccia on deck to discuss last week's UFC on ESPN in which Curtis Blades picked up a win over Alexander Volkov. A hard-fought win, I think more difficult than a lot of folks would have presumed. And this weekend, we have a pretty solid fight card on deck, Nick. 11 <laughs> fights, main evented by Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker. This should be very exciting. Co-headliner Mike Perry in there against Mickey Gall. Overall, the card is okay, Nick. But more importantly, that main event is goddamn spectacular. Promises to bring fireworks. Yeah, I agree. But first, I think there's a couple of things that we need to talk about from Blades versus Volkov, particularly with our competition, where I am now going to refer to you as the record-breaking Stan Dryev. Now, we tied, uh, as our listeners may have noticed, it's been a lot more competitive lately. I think we're something like 2-2-1 two, two, and one over the last five cards now. But you did something that I don't think has been done in any of our 60 previous shows, which is you your picks kicked off uh, for you, oh, and four. That was four consecutive wrong picks. And, uh, you know, Marion Renault was, uh, she was doing her best to make it oh, and five. You were pushing for the golden sombrero there, Stan, but still, you were now the record breaking Stan Dryev with unprecedented, <laughs> unprecedented, <laughs> unprecedented, unspeakable, unpronounceable uh, levels of ineptitude on our show. So I just wanted to kind of let you stew in that for a minute, how it feels to, for all of the research, for all of the study, for all of that, just all go up in flames with a, a Jim Miller armbar. Nick, I offer you my sincerest congratulations. You've tied with me. And for you, that's about as close to a win as it gets nowadays. At this point, our tally is 10 wins for me, three wins for you, and three draws. You're able to tie me just as often as you're able to beat me. Nick, if we counted every draw as a win for you, I would still have 67% more event wins than you. You know what happens when a title fight goes to a draw, Nick? The champion keeps the belt around his or her waist. And me being the reigning, defending, undisputed champion of this podcast, the king stays king. The record-breaking Stan Dryov, 0-4 to kick off the event. It, felt, it was like eating dessert. It was like I had a pint of Ben & Jerry's that was never-ending, everlasting. That's how good it felt to hear you be wrong over and over again. Nick, again, the fact that you're celebrating, the fact that we tied, <laughs> the fact that you are so excited to get a draw out of me. That shows you everything you need to know about the different leagues with which we're dealing with on this podcast, Nikolai. Again, 10 wins for me, three wins for you. You should be proud of yourself, my friend. But how are you tracking 2-2-1 two, two, and one over the last five? It seems like it should be a lot easier for you to defeat me. Instead, we're neck and neck for the last six Ten, weeks. 10, 3, and 3. Why are you talking about like months and months ago, pre-COVID, <laughs> I was a completely different person. Totally different person. Were you a different person? What was different about you, Nick? Oh, yeah. For one, I, I wasn't 5'9". I was 6'4". <laughs> and, and you know what's funny, Nick? I started off at 6'4", and I am now 5'9". How did, how did this occur? <laughs> oh, shit. We did body switch. Nice. 
That would be awesome. I would love to be you for a day. I would get I would get treated so much better. Why don't we take it back to the fights here and how I'm going to kick your ass again. Next Nixie, week. the fact that you said again, the fact that you take a draw as a win, it just really tells you a lot. That's called resilience. I didn't just like, I didn't spar once with your IFA and then run away from the cage. Run away from the cage? How dare you? I don't run. It's called footwork, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> Curtis Blades outworked Alexander Volkov. Look, he looked dominant early as we, I think, largely expected. He was getting takedowns at will, even though he was having trouble doing a whole lot of damage. But Volkov started to take over at the end. It seemed like Curtis Blades largely ran out of gas after that uh, three-round period. What did you think of that main event, buddy? Yeah, it was fine. I um, Listen, I don't believe that Curtis Blades is ever going to be someone who has the answer to Francis Ngannou. I'd like to see him fight Stephen Miocic. I think it'd be interesting. Um, and he did run out of gas, but that's because, you know, he was fighting, he was fighting like sea level cane for the first three rounds and only one man can fight like sea level cane and that's sea level cane. <laughs> yeah. That um, about you know, right. so, you know, he gassed a little bit, but Volkov still couldn't do much about it. So that, you know, that was that not the, not, I thought it would be over sooner. It was, you know, it was kind of boring. It was. Um, blades, blades, heel, you know, blades, heel turn, Dana White. Um, cutting a promo on him in the post-event scrum, or press conference rather, uh, was interesting, I suppose. But when that's when that's you know the thing that people are talking about, you're like, oh, it's a light news week. So I not not the I think there were a lot, there were three or four other fights that were way more fun to talk about on the card. Yeah, but I will say about Curtis Blades, I had my serious concerns about how tired he looked late in that fight. And he trains at Elevation Fight Team, which is, you know, in Colorado, thousands of feet above sea level. So you would expect that his cardio should should give him the edge over just about any other heavyweight. But for this fight, he ended up weighing in 14 pounds heavier than for his last five-round fight against Junior Dos Santos. So I wouldn't be surprised if he took Volkov lightly with the way he was talking leading up to the fight. He mentioned after the fight that he didn't have a training partner Volkov size to train with. And I think him being at Elevation Fight Team, which largely consists of smaller fighters, and the fact that there's a pandemic made it much more difficult for him to bring somebody in that might match Volkov's statistics. But look, a win for Curtis Blades is a win. Alexander Volkov is truly a top heavyweight. I think leading into this fight, he's 6 or 7-1 and one in the UFC. So this is nothing to scoff at. He took three rounds, and it's not like the decision is disputed. So I'll give Curtis Blades his props. But as far as Dana White talking trash to Blades, look, Blades is taking on a personality. I'm fine with it being kind of this interesting heel. He's not really unlikable per se. The stutter kind of uh, makes him a little bit of a sympathetic figure to me, even though he's such a monster in the cage. But Dana White cutting a promo on him, like you've never promoted this guy. He's a really talented heavyweight. You don't have very many talented heavyweights. So he has to do it himself. And I know that he's not a, he's not a blonde person with a lot of charisma and an accent, but like that doesn't mean that he can't get a push from the UFC. A guy like him should be on them in the main event more. And quite frankly, Dana White should be backing him in this kind of situation rather than dressing down his fighters. Yeah, but he's, I mean, he's dressing them down because any, we've, we've talked about this for how many shows in a row now, Stan. Anytime there is fighter unity, fighter resolve, anything that even sniffs of a fighter collective um, with a unified chant of fuck you, pay me. Dana White snuffs it out, is qu and no matter how he has to. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but what it certainly isn't at this point is unexpected. Okay. And a guy like Curtis Blades, 
with those two losses to Nganu, with Cormier and Miocic coming up. Curtis Blades vanishes from the UFC. Dana White doesn't lose any sleep. And so unfortunately, when a fighter like uh, with like Blades uh, talks like that, he's going to catch the brunt of it, uh, particularly because there's more money to be made in other fighters speaking up like Masvidal. So Dana may have little digs here and there, but he's not going, he's not going to cut a promo on Jorge Masvidal. I mean, he, he somewhat has, I guess, but uh, so this Curtis Blades complained about his pay, Nick, leading up to this. I haven't heard anything. Yeah. Yeah. He was saying saying stuff that other fighters have said, and he's not wrong. He's saying we're not paid what we deserve. Pay us like other sports. And he was talking about that stuff in the promotion leading up to the fight. Nick, that explains absolutely everything. That's all I needed to hear. It makes so much sense. And you know what? If Curtis Blades, for the record, if he'll be the Stone Cold Steve Austin of the UFC, where he's kind of, you know, fairly likable, obviously not as charismatic, but fairly likable, and he's going to relent against the boss and still whoop people's asses because Dana White can't really punish him by giving him a terrible style matchup because he's not likely to set up that third fight with Nganu, especially given where the heavyweight landscape is. So Curtis Blades largely can stay untouched and talk shit to the UFC, and he can keep winning as long as he's not fighting Stipe or Nganu. So... Yeah, I, I'm kind of into this dynamic, and I look forward to it continuing. Although I wouldn't be surprised if Blaze doesn't get a fight for about six to eight months now that he's complained about his pay. Um, in the co-main event, Nick, Josh Emmett, Shane Burgos. We expected this to be the kind of most look-forward-to fight on the card, and that was for good reason. It was a spectacular co-main event. Burgos and Emmett went at it the entire time. Both landed plenty. Josh Emmett landed so many bombs, got so many knockdowns. From what I understand, he set the record for the most knockdowns in featherweight history in a three-round fight. So really exciting stuff. I thought he only knocked him down twice. Did he knock him down three times? Uh, I thought it was three times. And to be fair, my source for the fact that he may have broke the record is Josh Emmett himself. Uh, I think he said somebody mentioned it to him after the fight. I thought he was talking about featherweight history as a collective. Oh, you might be right. That makes a lot more sense in context. Yeah, so for me, going into this matchup, my thought was that Shane Burgos is super slick. He's really talented. He has the height reach advantage. He's very fast on his own. He hits pretty hard, right? But the problem with him is that he's hittable. And you can't really afford to be hittable against one of the heaviest hitters in your weight division in Josh Emmett. And that's what turned out to be the real difference. It seemed like Josh Emmett was landing absolute bombs anytime he wanted to in that first round, even though Burgos was landing some of his own. That second round, Burgos took over, and he was looking really good. And then that third round, Josh Emmett just really put it on him, and his power made all of the difference in order for him to clinch that decision. I think the argument could be made that if not for the knockdowns, that third round could have easily gone either way. So... Definitely a, a big win for Josh Emmett, who, by the way, complained about not being pushed by the UFC. And from what yeah. I understand, I was one of the very, very few MMA pickers to to choose him to win this fight. I expected him to finish, as a matter of fact, because of his power. But uh, what were your thoughts, buddy? My thoughts are that it was a, it was a great and entertaining fight. They're both very likable, um, easy guys to root for. Burgos is a you know, Bronx native, so for us, he's local. Um, yeah. which is always cool. And for me, what this fight brings out is it allows us to make a, a distinction between toughness and resourcefulness, right? Mm-hmm. Both of them were really, really tough. Emmett was injured. Burgos hit him, and he, he you know, had this awkward uh, hyperextension of his knee, maybe his ACL. Um, Josh Emmett, who, you know, we know that he's tough, but he had to be resourceful. He was without um, some of his tools after that. 
and he had to figure out a way to implement uh, a winning game plan and to work around the fact that he couldn't plant that his takedowns uh, attempts were going to be essentially erased. Shane Burgos, on the other hand, incredibly tough, but his answer to all of Emmett's artillery was to bite down harder on the mouthpiece. He's incredibly tough. He's incredibly resilient. Um, he did not prove to be particularly resourceful because after he started getting tagged by the middle of the second round, he needed to do something uh, to become more elusive. Even if it meant that he was landing less, even if it meant that he was maybe landing lighter and keeping more distance and using his kicks more, maybe understanding that Emmett wasn't going to be able to go for takedowns because of that knee, Shane Burgos did not pivot strategically. He wasn't resourceful enough to win what, could, what I think was a winnable fight. Uh, and because of that, uh, Emmett was able to use his, his, uh, his power and his own resourcefulness um, to kind of knock Shane Burgos silly by the end of the fight. And and does and absolutely deserve the decision. Yeah, I'm absolutely there with you. And you're right. I kind of glossed over and failed to mention that I think it was a knee injury by Josh Emmett early in that first round, and he really did have to persevere. And I think he still won that first round because he landed so many bombs. But yeah, you're right. It's actually particularly impressive the fact that he hurt himself early and still did well. You wonder what he would have done had he stayed largely intact throughout the bout. Maybe then he would have uh, picked up that finish, which is kind of what I had been hoping for. I, I placed a bet on that. I was really expecting Josh Emmett to land that bomb and end it. But Shane Burgos proved plenty, plenty tough. Uh, we had Raquel Pennington going up against Marion Renault. This is kind of a, you know, a couple of gatekeepers at two different levels. Pennington, you know, if you beat her, you're probably one of the very best. And Marion Renault, if you beat her, then you're probably ready for that top 10, top 12 of the 135-pound division. Raquel Pennington, you know, largely did her thing. Marion Renault made it competitive. Pennington doesn't generally win shutouts. And that was the case here, a fairly competitive fight that Raquel Pennington stayed ahead on in most cases. What did you think of that one, bud? Listen, Renault's 42, I think, or maybe 43. She's in fantastic shape. She turned 43 she's, on fight night. Oh, she looks, I mean, she looks good. And she's she's tough. I thought she fought pretty well. Um, Pennington does not always fight uh, with incredible urgency. And I thought, that, I thought that she did. I felt like she was super, super tough and was able to land some leather uh, the tie clinch, if I recall, looked really terrific, and yeah, I thought she, or I thought she, I thought she looked great. I thought she felt with, I thought that she fought with a lot of purpose. I agree with you there. Uh, Bella Muhammad, Lyman Good, another phenomenal fight. If Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos was not on this card, then this would have been fight of the night for sure. Bella Muhammad looked really good early, man. He was putting it on Lyman Good for I would say the first round and three quarters. And then Lyman Good really came on strong in the late second round, really put it on him in the third round. I really expected this fight to possibly go the other way, right? Where Lyman Good would look good early. He's the muscular, explosive power hitter. So you expect him to kind of put it all forward and then run out of gas. But he had a lot of trouble finding Bilal, who was using excellent footwork, excellent in and out movement as he was landing strikes and was able to get out of the way of any potential uh, counter strikes from Good, who again hits really hard, and and he showed that in in the very final moments of this fight, where he was essentially tossing Bilal Muhammad around. But Bilal Muhammad deserves a lot more credit, I think, than he's been getting. This is his first athletic opponent against whom he was able to have a really good showing in the UFC, and to me, this shows growth. Lyman Good, you know, if he had continued to fight the way that he did for the first round and change, then 
maybe it wouldn't have been as impressive, but the fact that Bilal had to survive the second half of this fight uh, really adds a lot to his credit. And I don't think that Lyman Good's stock necessarily fell very far down here. Uh, he took a loss in this one, but you know, an argument could be made in his favor. Yeah, he honestly, winnable fight for him. Bilal Muhammad fought his fight strategically. He still showed that his chin doesn't hold up great against heavy artillery. Um, but Good was, as the, as the commentators suggested, uh, Good's looked a little flat. He it took Good uh, a round and a half to a round and two thirds um, to get into a groove. And when he did, he looked terrific. But he was not. He was. He did not fight to his potential in the first round. And Muhammad was elusive. I got to give him credit for that. But Good uh, was kind of doing flat-footed stalking, throwing a uh, you know one and done, yep. uh, rather than combos. And but by you know he found it took him half the fight to find himself. But with everything that he's been going through, like. Can't really blame him. Well, he is a COVID survivor, but has, was there something else that's been going on with him lately? Uh, well, he lost his dad four weeks ago. Oh, wow. That is pretty serious. Yeah. You know what? I do remember you texting this to me as the fight was about to start. Uh, yeah. Really good performance by Bilal Muhammad. But you're, uh, like you said, Lyman Good had his moments to say the very least as well. Jim fucking Millernick. Another first round finish over a serious prospect in Roosevelt Roberts. He looked really good here, Nick. And I alluded to this in the last episode as a preview for this bout. His last one, two, three, his last four wins now, Nick, have come in the very first round, and they've all been by submission. This guy is scary on the ground, and in those first five minutes, man, he is really hard to compete with for a lot of those guys that don't have either the veteranship or the athleticism to really survive that initial stanza. Who knows what Lyme disease robbed him of? But he, he looked great. Yeah, I think at this point, the Lyme disease factors in because, you know, again, I, I don't think he's very good past that five-minute mark. And I think his conditioning is probably what's suffering the most. And I think that's something that's affecting him to this day. Also, he's a significantly older guy than he was. So that's probably a factor, too. Um, Bobby Green, Clay Guida. This was, this was two veterans uh, showing that they've still got the cardio and just scrapping. It. it was a good one. Yeah, I, Bobby Green's evasive movement was so good. I mean, he looked the most slick that he ever has in his career in this one. Uh, I was very impressed, especially considering Clay Guida came to fight. The man was not trying to take it easy. He wasn't trying to avoid him by any means. He looked super slick. Bobby Green did, and granted, it was against Clay Guida, who's literally the opposite of slick. I mean, I feel like realistically you might look slick when compared with Clay Guida, but still, a really good performance on him, and Clay Guida shows that he still has some miles in the tank. I'll take, I'll take that as a compliment. You should. Tisha Torres made Brown of Van Buren look like an Invicta fighter, which I did not think would happen. She just styled all over her in the second and third round. Yeah, she really did. Last week's episode, I talked about how Tisha Torres has all of the tools to beat Brianna Van Buren. The potential lack of confidence, the fact that she, I know, has been struggling with depression over the years, I figured that would play a bigger factor, but she was in the perfect mind space. She was confident, and she showed it right away. Uh, I think also she took some confidence from the fact that she realized she's the quicker fighter, and she's got multiple depths to her stand-up game that Brianna Van Buren simply doesn't. And on top of that, Tisha Torres largely has good takedown defense. She looked like the more muscular, just more dense fighter in there and really good on her. I talked about how her four of her five losses in the UFC are to the last four champions at 115 pounds. So it really does take a very high level to beat her. And it looks like Brianna Van Buren is just not quite ready for it yet. When I was watching her compete, it seemed to me like I was looking at Daniel Cormier, which she was 
uh, kind of faking something or changing levels or, or moving that head or coming in with a with a straight cross. And the fact is that she can't really put it all together like DC. And most importantly, Nick, she did not pressure. I think that she's someone who's been told to be a pressure fighter, but she doesn't really have it within her to push forward when times get tough, like Cormier would. And that really made a difference here. She needs to continue the pressure because Tisha Torres in the past has lost to pressure fighters against fighters like Jessica Andrade. She ran out of gas, even though she looked really good early. But all of that walking backwards, all of that uh, trying to evade big bombs really gets you tired. And Tisha Torres did not have to do that in this bout. Yeah, the rest of the card, I mean, not, not too much of note, really. Pichota, uh, Barout is fine. You know, a couple of unranked guys throwing down to keep their spot. I do want to quickly say about Marc-Andre Barriou, he's a guy that was 0-3, I think, in the UFC leading up to this fight, so he was about to get his pink slip, right? And he was timid in his last bouts. He's a really good striker, and he just needed to add the pressure element. And he got into really good shape for this one, and he was pressuring Oscar Piacetta with heavy, heavy strikes, just consistently pressuring. And even though he got caught early a couple times, he continued to pressure, unlike Brianna Van Buren. And that's what made all the difference. So I look forward to seeing him really implement this style because he can have a lot of success in the UFC if he can do that. Yep. Jillian Robertson and Courtney Casey was like watching a replay of Caitlin of Caitlin Kuchagian against Valentina Shevchenko. True. Um, and yeah, Robertson just, she had a game plan. She went in there and Courtney Casey couldn't stop it. Yeah, Casey has shitty takedown defense, and uh, if she really paid for it, uh, Jillian Robertson, once again, has another submission win. We need to look at her as a real contender at this point. Uh, Justin Janes is one of those guys who was like, all right, short notice, I'm going to go in and just be a wild man. And uh, he landed enough shots that uh, Camacho could, not, you know, just just buckle under the power. I think he was hoping for a, a more me- a more measured bout, and he just got he just got blitzed. Sometimes it happens. It's like watching an old Manerly Silva fight. It was a straight axe murder. I agree. You're right. Very much like that. The thing about Justin James is that now, including this one, his last five wins are all by first-round knockout, and his opponent's records are pretty good. Uh, this opponent had 22 wins. His last opponent had 23 wins, 8-5 and five before that, 5-2 and two before that. So he's smashing people in that very first round, and I think he knew he didn't have the cardio to really push very far. Although I will say, those local Vegas fighters, they should all be like staying in shape right now because the UFC will call you as they put fights in the Apex Center. And uh, this guy certainly took advantage of it. He's got really solid wrestling, and he hits incredibly hard, and he was able to take advantage of that. I actually thought those odds were skewed. You and I spoke a little bit before this fight happened, once they announced it. I thought the odds were way skewed, and he was a phenomenal deal on the betting side of things. And, man, did that come through big time. Yeah. Lauren Murphy was just stronger than uh, our you know, fan favorite, Roxanne Mataferi. Um, not, not, you know, she didn't over, overwhelm her as much as Jennifer Maya did with the strength, but Roxy just could not, uh, get the takedown, even though she had the fight, uh, where she wanted it with Murphy up against the cage plenty. Um, Murphy was able to turn it around on her, stay out in the, in the middle of the cage enough and just had a lot more muster on her shots. That's, uh, I mean, that, that's basically it. It wasn't a, wasn't a blowout, but it was a definitive, uh, definitive victory for Lauren Murphy. 
Yeah, I figured Murphy's stand-up and takedown defense and the fact that she's stronger than Matafari would make a difference in this one, and it did. Matafari's improving on her strength and conditioning. She's really focusing on it lately, but you don't just catch up on that in a few months against a pretty athletic, dense Lauren Murphy, who's like, honestly, one of the more muscular 125-pounders in that division. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a good performance by Murphy, who's quickly working her way up that division, man. She She's becoming a real threat, man. And then uh, Austin Hubbard defeated Max Roshkoff in what was the most controversial bout of the evening. Roshkoff coming in on uh, on short uh, on short notice um, was gassed, completely gassed, and beaten up, and had turf toe, apparently, and uh, wanted out after round two. And Robert Drysdale, his trainer, was uh, pushing back on him. And uh, there's been a lot of press about it. And Drysdale came out and defended himself. Um, you know, who's who's to say that's it's uh i feel like if a fighter says that they're done you probably shouldn't let him out there i i do agree with that i think it i think drysdale was kind of right and kind of wrong i I don't think drysdale imagined that this fight would continue into that third round given how max was speaking in between rounds max just kept saying i'm done i'm done and drysdale would say something like you've got this you can do this and he's like i can't i don't i don't have this i'm done so what we're seeing in max roscoff who's 5-0 and leading into this fight, largely you know dominant wins. He's got the wrestling background. He's got the jiu-jitsu background, tapping black belts on the jiu-jitsu scene, even though he's only a purple belt. But here we saw what happens when he doesn't really have much of a gas tank or he's tired and, and he's got you know a medium-level opponent who's willing to bomb on him. Austin Hubbard really put it on him late in that fight. As a matter of fact, this is one of the rare occasions where uh, the fighter who gets finished actually lands the last punch of the fight. Uh, Max Roscoff landed, I think it was a right hook as the round, second round ended, even though he was largely dominated, and then ended up literally giving up. The kid doesn't have heart. I wouldn't be surprised if he retires after this. And as far as uh, Robert Drysdale hey, goes... Wait, do you think that's yeah. fair? Do you think that's fair to say that he doesn't, that he doesn't have heart? I mean, if, yeah, he, if he did not... If, even taking, the, taking it on a short, no, on short notice... Do I think that he sh- it should be frowned upon in any special way? No, not particularly. There are so many fighters that are so much less talented than him who would have absolutely gone into that third round. And look, for normal human beings, Mass Roscoff did the right thing. For high-level fighters, that's not the mindset you can possibly have if you're ever going to reach the highest level. It really isn't, especially when your coach is pleading with you and trying to motivate you and you're just flat out saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And I wouldn't be surprised if he meant like in his life, he did not want to be there. He didn't want to be on the receiving end of any offense. And again, yeah, the guy doesn't have heart. You can be as exhausted as you can be. I've been, I've been exhausted 12, 15 rounds in, in training and dominated, uh, by guys because of it. Right. But I kept going. I had too much pride to ever give them that satisfaction. Max, that was not the case with. He pleaded with his coach and then with the referee to stop the fight. As far as Robert Drysdale goes, um, look, I think the right thing to do would have been to try to motivate him until the very last moment. And then when that hasn't worked, you tell the referee the fight is done. He didn't do that latter part is really the only difference. I think it was pretty clear that Max was going to make sure uh, that he didn't have to come out for that third Let's uh, take a little break, and then we'll get into this weekend's upcoming card. Let's do it, Nick. Back on the MMA Geek C-Level Podcast, Nick and I are going to make our draft picks now. Uh, For all the listeners that have been with us for a while, you guys know this already. 
we each take turns picking fighters on the upcoming card. And then at the end of the event, we each end up, in this case, we're going to end up with five picks apiece with Nick picking a tiebreaker. And then uh, whoever ends up with the most wins ends up winning the week. I so far have won 10 to Nick's three. We have three draws. Nikolai, this week you get first dibs. What's your first pick, buddy? I'm going to go with Platinum Mike Perry to knock out Mickey Gall. I think that, I mean, Perry hasn't submitted before. Mickey Gall's got some pretty sweet jiu-jitsu, but I think that Perry's got power, and we've seen Gall, I think, uh, wilt a little bit under heavy hands, and I just think Perry's going to touch him uh, pretty quickly and be smart, you know, be, be cautious enough. I don't think Mike Perry's a dumb guy. Um, and I think this is, I think this is his fight to lose. I just don't think he's going to fall for any of Gaul's, uh, tricks or traps, and he should be able to land heavy shots, both standing up. And I could see him also doing it from like a stacked guard position and getting a, uh, getting a TKO. Mike Perry is really a must-watch fighter when it comes to the UFC between his personality, his look, his fighting style. Uh, he's been making headlines lately by leaving his coaches and training under his college-aged girlfriend, Nick, who has no MMA experience. Uh, he's riding a two-fight losing streak into this bout, but he lost the top welterweight prospect, Joff Neal and Vincente Luque, so not really too much to be ashamed of. He looked a part of a high-level welterweight in the Luque fight, but has struggled to get a streak going over the past three years. Mickey Gall made his name by beating up on CM Punk and Sage Northcutt. He tends to beat lower-level fighters, but loses to prospects, and even like a weathered veteran like Diego Sanchez. He will be in an athletic and experienced disparity in this matchup, but he should have the advantage on the ground, not to mention the height and reach. Going to roll the dice on Perry on this one, I'm largely in agreement. Look, if Perry had a real training camp behind him, I'd have no doubt, but the guy's training, like his his five foot two girlfriend is holding pads for him who has no idea what to do he's got these two training partners who are like you know have two or three fights on record even though they're about the size of mickey gal uh so you know mickey gal's training situation is better than perry's at this point but this is a big drop off in competition for perry who needs a win as badly as anyone on the roster right now uh, i'm gonna slightly lean perry but man it's it's risky because of his situation man the guy's a head case and he's not exactly writing a winning streak going into this one my first picnic, I'm going to take Brendan Allen to beat Kyle Dukas. Uh, at least I believe that's how you say his name. Brendan Allen, he's shown himself to be a real, real prospect in the UFC this far. He's looked spectacular with finishes of Kevin Holland and Tom Breeze. Also two guys that, you know, at one point or another are seen as prospects. Even though he trains at Rufus Sport, which generally produces solid kickboxers, he finishes opponents using his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Really solid takedowns, excellent positioning, good submissions, and ground and pound he showed in his last bout as well. Kyle Dukas is uh, making his UFC debut in this one. He's undefeated in nine fights with eight of them Having come by submission, he's 6'3", but lacks the experience and speed in the stand-up realm. Uh, Allen should have the advantage everywhere. He's a serious UFC-level prospect going up against a regional-level prospect who has glaring holes. So not a whole lot of doubt for me on this one, Nick. Yeah, I had the same I had the same pick there. I'm going to – I mean, there's some fights with broader odds, but I'm going to keep it my confident picks with people that I know best. I'm going to pick Diamond Dustin Poirier against Dan Hooker. Um, I think that, you know, Hooker's been saying, oh, I'm not sure that Poirier is as tough as Paul Felder. Listen, I love Paul Felder. I think Dustin Poirier is, is more athletic. 
Also, he's someone who beat Justin Gagey, and if you can take a few rounds of Gagey shots, um, I'm pretty confident you can take a few rounds of Dan Hooker shots. I think Poirier's got a more well-rounded game, um, and that I think he might have the I think he might have the better striking, and I think he's got the better I think he's an all-around better fighter. So you know maybe coming off of the loss to Khabib, uh, you know we'll see. But Poirier's been in there and been tested against against Gagey and against Eddie Alvarez. And I don't think Dan Hooker's bringing... I mean, he's got height and length, I suppose, but he's. I don't. I believe that Dustin Poirier has walked through hotter hells than Dan Hooker. Yeah, at 31, Dustin Poirier is enjoying his prime with his last five fights, including wins over Anthony Pettis, Justin Gaethje, Eddie Alvarez, and Max Holloway, followed by a loss to Khabib Nurmagomedov. Every one of those names is holding or has held a UFC title. Coming into this, his 33rd MMA bout, he's facing a rising contender, Dan Hooker. He has a refined pressure and counter game, Dustin Poirier does, that is backed up by his ability to grind out a round if things are getting tough on the feet. He's known for toughness and heart as much as he's known for his power. Dan Hooker trains at City Kickboxing with the likes of Israel Adesanya and Alexander Volkanovsky. His last five wins are over Jim Miller, Gilbert Burns, James Vick, Ally Quinta, and Felder most of them by first-round knockout. He brings a similar southpaw game as Poirier, but does not have the output or the same level of five-round experience. He does hold a height and reach advantage that should make up for some of that difference. Poirier is 8-2 and two against southpaws, while Hooker is 1-1. One and one. So I, I kind of favor Poirier for that reason. Poirier's been in trench wars and looked good in the five-round fights where he's been kind of handled in the third round. He can come back and look really good late in the fight. For that reason, I favor him to win a war of attrition against Hooker, but Hooker's knees and calf kicks may just be the perfect weapons against Poirier, so this is definitely not a confident pick, and I happen to think the odds are a little bit lopsided here. A little bit lopsided, meaning you think they should be closer? I think they should be closer, yeah. Okay. Last time I checked, Poirier is a two-to-one favorite. It, it just—I mean, Dan Hooker is a really solid fighter. Granted, Poirier's been beating up some high-level op- opposition, but Dan Hooker's been beating up some high-level prospects on his way to this point. So I do think the odds are a little too far apart. Yeah, my next pick, Nick, is going to be—I'll take Sean Woodson to beat Kyle Nelson. After getting a knockout on Contender Series, Sean Woodson looked good in the UFC debut. He's 6'3", he's one of the tallest featherweights in the UFC, and has the striking prowess to utilize his size advantage. He trains with James Krause and the crew at Glory MMA. Kyle Nelson's coming off his first UFC win after an 0-2 start against Carlos Diego Ferreira and Matt Sales. Just under six feet tall, he should have the strength and ground game advantage over Woodson. His weakness has been his cardio and energy management, as he's looked good early on, even against top contenders like Ferreira, but the wheels tend to fall off if there's pushback. For that reason, I favor Woodson to survive the early storm and get a finish as Nelson progressively tires. Uh, I had the same pick for that fight just a little bit later. Next, I'm going to go... I'm going uh, to trust the odds makers here to some degree, but I believe she's out of Invicta, Miranda Maverick. I'm going to pick to defeat uh, Mara Romero Barella, who's been not particularly impressive in her UFC career. Um, you know, we may find that the jump in competition or the UFC jitters get to Maverick, but I, uh, you know, at minus 300 um, and knowing Barella's performance thus far, I'm going to go, uh, go with Maverick. 
I wish I had something more insightful to say there, but I haven't got to any tape on Maverick yet. Uh, yeah, I actually did end up watching some tape on Maverick. Uh, Mara Romero Barello is badly in need of a win as she has amassed a 2-4 UFC record right now riding a three-fight losing streak. She's a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none, but she does get at least one takedown per fight for the most part. The Italian fighter trains at American Top Team and competed just last month, so she should be in shape for this one. Miranda feared the Maverick as a southpaw prospect that sought most of her professional career in Invicta. Coming into her UFC debut with a 7-2 record, she will have a height and reach advantage here, but she's the younger fighter by 12 years in this matchup, which is kind of crazy. Uh, she's fairly meat and potatoes on the feet, but does well from top position. Uh, she does have a tendency to be taken down in a lot of her fights, even against kind of lower-level opposition. Uh, and that's kind of what worries me. I think the odds are a little too lopsided in this one as well. Barella has, you know, decent experience. Miranda's being treated like a top prospect by the odds makers, and I think they're giving her too much credit at like minus 290 or something. This should be closer to a pick as either fighter can get on top position and do well, whereas the stand-up is fairly even with the underdog having the edge and reach and UFC experience in Barella. Having said that, Barella is at a low point when it comes to confidence, and Maverick tends to figure out a way to win, so I'm giving her a slight edge. But again, just I think the odds are a little bit off on this one as well. My next pick, Nick, I'm going to take Luis Pena to beat Karma Worthy. Both of these guys could be looked at as prospects. Uh, Pena trains at American Top Team. His nickname is Violent Bob Ross, which is pretty awesome because he looks like the painter Bob Ross. He's 8-2 in MMA. Both losses are by split decision to fellow prospects. Standing at 6'3", he's tall for the weight class. You know, obviously having AKA behind him, he's in one of the elite camps to sharpen his tools. Karma Worthy made his UFC debut on short notice where he scored a big KO victory against highly touted prospect Devontae Smith. Riding the momentum of a six-fight winning streak into this one, he hopes to make good in his second UFC showing as an underdog. He's got a bit of a herky-jerky style as he throws calf kicks with both legs and waits for an opportunity to counter with his hands. And that counter opportunity came pretty early on in his UFC debut. I'm giving the advantage to Pena here because having a higher level camp behind him his reach and his UFC experience he should be able to pick up a competitive decision Karma has a solid right hand but his takedown defense isn't great so I expect that Pena who's a high school state wrestling champ to land at least one takedown per round if he wants to uh, sounds good I was on the line there um, oof, this next fight is a battle of the terrible fight IQs <laughs> um, but one with tremendous heart and one with I guess questionable heart to go with the questionable IQ but uh, a lot of size. You got. G- I don't, I'm not even sure who my pick is when I'm going into this analysis. That. You got Gene Gian Vellante who's moving up to heavyweight. You got Maurice Green who's a big dude um, who can hit hard. It's like Vellante is. Is he going to be able to land enough? Is Vellante going to be able to have a heavyweight chin? Um, you know, TBD. Uh, is Green going to do something stupid? Very possible. <laughs> it's a. This is a very very tough one to call. Um, I guess I'll say that Gian Vellante has found a way to win, whereas Maurice Green seems like he uh, finds a way to lose. So I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with Gian Vellante here um, to one way or another uh, get Maurice Green out of there. I hear that uh, Vellante has been a, been a mainstay at 205 after alternating wins and losses throughout his UFC career, is making his heavyweight debut in this one. He's a social climber, listing his best friend as Chris Weidman when Weidman was a champion, and then Stipe Miocic became his best friend when Chris went on a downslide. If Stipe loses to Cormier in August, I expect he'll ingratiate himself to another champ that's in driving range of Long Island. 
Wait, Volante doesn't train with Weidman anymore at all? Uh, I, I don't know if he trains with Weidman at all, but I know that he goes out to Ohio a lot and spends a lot of time with Stipe. Uh, okay. Maurice Green is tall, talented, and athletic, but he's also green for high-level MMA. He'll try and shake off a two-fight losing streak to Sergei Pavlovich and Alexei Olenek as he welcomes Volante to the heavyweight ranks. He trains at Factory X with Devontae Smith and James Krause. Green will have the size advantage and possibly even technique. So I do like him to outwork Volante, who probably gassed midway into the fight. But having said that, you're right. Both of these guys' fight IQs are lacking. At least Volante has experience. Uh, so maybe maybe there's good reason to believe in him in this one. My next pick, Nikolai, I'm going to take Tanner Bozer to beat Philip Lenz. Philip Lenz is coming into his second UFC bout here. His first one was against Andre Arlovsky. He's a prospect out of Brazil. You know, it was a competitive decision loss to Arlovsky. actually looked good in that first round, and I thought won it. Coming into this bout, only six weeks later, the American top team fighter hopes to use his 18 fights of experience to edge Bozer. Linz is a technical striker, but has low output. He's fairly quick, but not explosive. Since he weighs like 230 pounds, honestly, he could make 205 pounds if he wants to. I'm giving Bozer a decent edge here. He's six years younger, heavier, has better stand-up overall, higher level of overall experience. His footwork is going to give him an edge as well. Linz is a BJJ black belt, but Bozer has solid takedown defense and good footwork, which should keep him out of range largely. I'm with you. Same same pick there. What do you got next? I'm gonna go with it'll probably be my downfall. I'm gonna go with one of my crush with my crush. Uh Ginny Frey is making her debut after being Invicta's uh closest thing to a star Adam Weight, I think they've had since Michelle Watterson uh graduated to the UFC. And she's stepping in to take on Kay Hansen. This could not go in my favor. Um, we're talking about a fighter who has who you know lost to Jody Esquivel in one, uh, early on in her career in Jin Frey, but she has had five round championship fights. Um, she has been on as big a stage as probably you can get on outside of the UFC. And um, but you know looking at uh, you know the career, there's a few you know there's a few impressive wins in Invicta uh, for Kay Hansen. So I don't think. I don't think she's going to be, uh, you know, a pushover. She's 5'3 with a, a 63-inch reach. I think that, uh, you know, Jin Yu's eh, going to have a, little, a, a same height, a bit of a, a little bit of a reach advantage. So even though she's moving up in weight uh, from atom weight to straw weight, she's not going to uh, be at too much of a size uh, disparity. It doesn't seem. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with her, and I'm sure the UFC is hoping. Uh, she's super, super marketable. So I'm sure the UFC is hoping they've got a star in her. Yeah, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised about that at all. So I've, I've done some kind of last minute research on this matchup, and Kay Hansen is like just a forward pressure grappler, trains out of Tenth Planet Jiu Jitsu. Really, her ground game is her meat and potatoes. She does get a lot of takedowns. She's like a strong girl, even though she's at a little bit of a height disadvantage in this matchup. I do have some concerns about her conditioning since any fighter that's going to go for a bunch of takedowns in a 15-minute fight is probably going to be tired at the end. Jin Frey is, you know, an experienced striker. She's got some miles on her, got quite a bit of experience, and like you said, she ruled that 105-pound division in Invicta for a little bit there at least. She's won in one of her last two fights, that loss coming in uh, Sengoku, I believe, in Japan. I kind of favor Kay Hansen here very slightly now. Here's the thing. Frey has been in five-round fights lately, whereas Hansen has kind of looked tired in the third round of her bout. So 
There's definitely going to be some concerns about conditioning. I wouldn't be surprised if the fight starts off going in one direction and then ends up going toward Frey toward the end. But I still like Hansen. Smaller cage. She's going to be able to apply some pressure, maybe push her up against that fence and get takedowns. Uh, but, you know, it, it really is a pick for good reason in this one. My final pick, Nikolai, is coming up. And then after that, you're going to make your tiebreaker pick. My final pick, I'm going to take in the Jordan Griffin Yusuf Zalal matchup. I'm going to take Yusuf Zalal. Zalal looked very good in his UFC debut where he outworked the previously undefeated Austin Lingo. His footwork allowed him to evade almost all the offense coming his way as he landed kicks, knees, and takedowns almost at will. He trains with Factory X, which has been putting out some high-level MMA over the past couple of years. Jordan Griffin is a crafty veteran who put his first UFC win on the ledger after going 0-2 against Dan Ige and Chaz Skelly. He's a fairly explosive southpaw fighting out of Rufus Sport, who has some deadly chokes with which he finished his last opponent, TJ Brown. I think Zalal should have better footwork, better striking, better wrestling. As long as he doesn't give Griffin his neck as he shoots in, he should be able to coast to a decisive win here. But Griffin is a just a crafty, crafty veteran. He'll find that submission if it's at all possible. So there's some concern here. So you're taking the underdog, Zalal. Yes, sir. Uh, what's, the, what's the remaining tiebreaker fight? The last fight is Takashi Sato versus Ramiz Brahimash. Ah, gotcha. I'm going with uh, Takashi Sato there. I'm largely with you. Sato is 1-1 in the UFC after getting his experience in Pancrase. He knocked out Ben Saunders and then lost by submission to Bilal. Don't forget the name, Muhammad. He's a southpaw fighter with a solid left hand who trains with Hard Knocks 365 crew out in Florida under the tutelage of Henry Hooft. Ramiz Brahimaj is a Fortis MMA prospect who has scored every one of his wins by first or second round submission. He generally tends to overwhelm opponents before they're able to get into a flow. Even though he can crack with some power, he hasn't really shown any depth to his stand-up game thus far. Ramiz has lost both of his fights that have gone past the second round, and I think Sato should be able to weather the early storm and outwork Ramiz. Uh, the risk is that Sato is a slow starter with Ramiz being kind of a quick finisher. So there is some question as to whether Ramiz can catch him cold. Uh, largely on the same page on this one, Nikolai, I look forward to boasting about my win. Or you know what? I look forward to you being very excited about tying with me once again. So our picks today, my first pick was Brendan Allen. Second, Sean Woodson. Third, I picked Luis Pena. Fourth, Tanner Bozer. My fifth pick was Yusuf Zalal to beat Jordan Griffin. Nick, your first pick was Mike Perry. Second, Miranda Maverick. Third, Dustin Poirier. Fourth, Gian Vellante. Fifth, Jin Yu Frey. And your tiebreaker pick was Takashi Sato. That fight only comes into play if we have a draw in our first five picks. This would kind of be the tiebreaker. Takashi Sato would mean you've won the event by tiebreaker. And obviously, if Ramiz Brahimai can pick up the victory, that gives me the victory for the week. Let's take a break. We'll come back and give these guys the MMA Geeks betting guide. Back on the MMA Geeks Seal Level Podcast, here to give you guys the MMA Geeks betting guide. Nikolai, I am going to read off my list of bets for this one because I do see some opportunities given all of the lopsided bets. Do you have any betting recommendations for our listeners? I'm protecting my money this week. On this one, I've actually got a couple of prop bets and some value bets following that. First, I recommend Yusuf Zalal by decision, plus $190, $53 to win $101. 
I just think his opponent is tough enough to at least survive a decision. Jordan Griffin is a tough, gritty vet. And if Zalal is winning, in all likelihood, it's going to be on points. Tanner Bozer usually wins by decision. He's a patient guy, very kind of karate style. Think Machida without the nasty, explosive left hand. So I'm going to take Tanner Bozer by decision, plus 160, $63 to win 101. And then we've got some value bets. Mara, Romera, Barella. Plus 245. I think the odds are lopsided here considering the fact that Maverick tends to get taken down in her fights and Barella is good at at the very least taking down and riding top position. So I recommend $20 on her to win 49 We got Mickey Gala plus 230 against Mike Perry. Like I said, Mike Perry has no legitimate training camp for this fight. So if there's ever a time where Mickey Gala can pick up a win over Perry, this is it. $22 to win 51 And then we've got Dan Hooker, plus 175. I think him and Poirier should be just about to pick him. I realize that Poirier's been at the very top for a while now, but Dan Hooker has been beating some pretty high-level prospects, in most cases decisively. So $28 to win $49 on Dan Hooker. And that will do it for the betting, Nikolai. So I don't know if you saw this. Mike Tyson and John Jones are starting to talk a little bit of trash to each other. Apparently, Mike Tyson said in an interview that if John Jones wants to make real money, um, he's got to go to the boxing side. He talked about how the only way that Conor McGregor was able to make $100 million is by fighting and boxing under Floyd Mayweather. He honestly made a good point, too. He basically said, if you want real money, you can't do it in that sport. And ain't that the fucking truth? And then John Jones responds and goes, uh, Mike Tyson, I would be honored to fight you, et cetera, et cetera, if you promise me a rematch in an MMA cage afterward, which is silly. That'll never happen. And he says something along the lines of, and because I respect you, I promise not to break anything on you. That's John Jones' version of trash talk, I suppose. So I don't know. I mean, would I love to see this? Hell fucking yes. Would I love to see a 55-year-old Mike Tyson knock the block off John Jones? Yes. But I don't think this is at all likely to happen here no it's just it's look tyson lost some weight he got in great shape he still you know looks really good hitting a bag which like let's face it there have been days when i looked good hitting a bag ah, <laughs> like not, not like him nick that's scary no, come on i don't know my i had my my like you know my right kick is something it's not Okay, it's not a Tyson hook to You're deliver. You're a but, wild man. Have um, you seen that footage? It's goddamn frightening. Yeah, no, he look. I mean, he looks great, but like being in a ring is totally different. I think that I think that Tyson would probably destroy John Jones in a boxing ring very, very quickly. I think he might um, yeah, even now. I think he. I think he would. I mean, it's just a different animal. John Jones would probably destroy him. It would be just like Randy Couture versus James Tony in an octagon. I don't need to see that. I don't know. If what Tyson's angling for money, Nick, he's angling for money. Um, I'm a li- I know I'm a little dis. I just am a little disappointed because I had li- I'd really liked where Tyson had gone um, in his career. And I don't need to see, I don't need to see Tyson as a, uh, as a prize fighter any longer, but John Jones is just doing the same kind of posturing that other fighters are doing. They, they feel that the UFC is nothing without them. And the UFC feels that the brand is bigger than the man. And just like, you know, people have been talking to Dana about Connor, and Dana's no selling it like crazy. Dana's saying, I don't talk, you know, he's retired. I don't chase people. Like, he's, Dana's going to promote and put out fights, and he's not, they work for the UFC. The UFC doesn't work for them. And although I understand and am cool with that dynamic, there are details underneath that dynamic that will make fighters uh, feel better compensated and better taken care of. And if the John Joneses, the Connors, the Jorge Masvidal's, 
if they all got together and we've talked about this yep. and, um, you know, and use their collective star power for the benefit of the underneath guys, everyone wins, but they don't want to do that. They'd rather go their own route. Like, you know, like Randy and libertarians and, <laughs> and shoot to shoot to have the, the biggest payoff, you know, possible, no matter what, uh, you know, what promotion they're in is, is straight up prize fighters. Um, you know, if you want to have company men, you've got to, uh, you got to, you got to treat them right. There have been guys who've been great company men over the years who look like they've made a good amount of coin. The Frankie Edgar's, you know, of the, of the world, the Paul Felder's of the world, um, the Rashad Evans of the world, guys who've been given uh, chances and opportunities uh, to further their career outside the cage. Um, a lot of guys either are not equipped to or do not desire to play that game. And they're looking for the most money possible. And let's also be honest about this. We should not assume that all, like being a cage fighter is not the same as being a martial artist, um, you know, ethically, spiritually. There are plenty of people of ill character who are fighting professionally in the UFC. And they are out for number one. And they lead, they can lead a fairly lawless life as potential or likely pound for pound, you know, best fight in the world, John Jones does. And, uh, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do because they don't, uh, you know, they essentially live an unscrupulous life. So I don't think we can look to John Jones to be the, the solidarity leader. He is not going to be the Lech, the Lech of of the UFC. He's just not that guy. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I would be shocked if there wasn't somebody, a lawyer, somebody who has experience with unionization or, or something of that sort, uh, you know, talent management, who's reaching out to all of these fighters or at least their management and going, look, let's bring all of these grievances together. Let's make this into one movement. That would be really tough for the UFC to argue against. The thing is that if they are smart enough to do that, they will then largely get what they want, these individual fighters, because the UFC would rather give John Jones the extra couple million dollars or Jorge Masvidal the extra, I don't know, million dollars etc etc rather than paying all the fighters double or triple what they're currently earning so i don't think any of this is leading to the middle class of the ufc getting paid anymore i think what this largely is leading to that either a couple of fighters are going to stay out for a while and this is going to continue to be a thing for a while or more than likely they're going to they're going to eventually start to talk about unionization if they're smart and that'll lead to the UFC giving them exactly what they want to essentially shut them up look Daniel Cormier talked about how he made a deal with the UFC that in this uh, upcoming bout against Stipe Miocic the UFC basically told him that he can have his uh, essentially his contract will be the same as if he was champion. He will get pay-per-view revenue. He will get, you know, uh, uh, I think, I don't know whether it's half a million dollars or, or $1 million is kind of a base pay, which is pretty good for, for a non-superstar champion like Cormier. And Cormier was talking about how, you know, he just knows how to, how to handle the UFC. With due respect to Cormier, sucking their dick is how you get those kinds of deals. Like seriously speaking. The UFC loves DC, right? They give them every job they can. When the ESPN asked them which fighter would be good for this detail series, the UFC put Daniel Cormier in that position. And Daniel Cormier's he a good dude. He has incredible value. He has incredible. He, I, we think he's a good dude. He projects himself as a good. Yeah. Dude. Oh yeah. He's, he's like a feeling. He has. He's a. He is a very smart, nonstop, hardworking guy who coaches. Hundred percent. He's, he's our, yes. He's articulate. He's charming. He's funny. But he's not a star, and he doesn't bring in the ratings. But the UFC treats him eh, he, like he is, he and like he does. Well. No, not really. He does he, I, mean, well. I mean, not really. Like his his pay per view will get maybe 
maybe 250, 300,000 buys. Um, unless he's fighting, you know, a, a star like Jones and there's a serious rivalry. He's not a superstar, but really good dude. And more importantly, he's very likable to UFC brass. And that holds so much value, right? Like a lot of these fighters, they come to a point in their careers when they have to decide. There's no more in between. You got to be either best friends with Dana and, and, and kiss his ass and, and kiss Sean Shelby's ass and all of those guys. Or you're going to play hardball. And you're going to be at a disadvantage. It's going to be a way harder road if you play hardball. But your potential for getting significantly more is there. If you're gonna, if Daniel Cormier is going to claim that he makes more money than John Jones, that's bullshit. He doesn't. He probably does comparably-ish well. But he's not making more money than John Jones by sucking up to uh, to Dana and the crew. right? John Jones playing somewhat hardball, bringing in high-level managers uh, and, and agents' representation that has worked out for him. It's not working at this moment, but it historically has worked out for him. He's made a lot more money than DC. And I know that DC going, is going into his retirement bout. But again, look, I do think that being extremely likable, being very personable with UFC brass, it can be really effective in getting you good deals. But they also kind of expect you to be a little bit subservient in that circumstance. Oh, they absolutely do. Brand first. Brand board, shareholders especially now with Endeavor WME, like they want, you know, they're going to want everyone to play the game because it's not just the Fertitas and Dana anymore. Yeah. Um, there's a, you know, there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother crew to answer to. And it, it's clear why, you know, why, why DC is so, so valuable to them. Yeah. And, and again, he's just extremely likable. Like he's hard to dislike and therefore you're going to be, anybody's going to be a lot more willing, a lot more likely to, to, you know, do him a favor, give them that extra, extra little bit when, sitting at the negotiating table. So here's a question. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's been a shift in camps recently. Like for, you talk a lot about Fortis. Um, we talk a lot about elevation. We're at a point now where after Cormier fights Miocic, Khabib is really AKA's only star left. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think you might be it, right. It, with... it used to be Rockhold, Cruz, right? Right. Rockhold left. Um, um, Kane is retired. DC is retiring. Yeah, you, you're making a good point. But to be fair, they did just bring in a couple of prospects. They've got the Brianna Van Buren's, who I know you know uh, is coming off a loss, yeah. but she's still she's still you know somewhat of a prospect on the come up. Cynthia Calvillo just joined that team, so they do have a little bit of a of an uprising of talent, and you don't really see a whole lot of fighters going there. I'm glad I'm seeing more of that lately. But you might be right. I, I would be interested to see where AKA is in a year, year and a half from now. Um, I don't think necessarily that their coaching is like super, super bright, but they are super experienced, craft, crafty coaches uh, over there. And uh, Javier Mendez and Bob Cook make a great team. They're fairly solid. Again, neither guy is going to blow you out of the water with their IQ like somebody like Greg Jackson, but they're clearly like the proof is in the pudding. You've seen the results. I also will say Hard Knocks 365 has been growing exponentially. So we've got some of those camps that were on the brink now looking really entrenched and really solid. Now they've got, you know, a champion of Kamaru Usman. They're working on, a, you know, another title challenger or two coming up here. So I do think there's been a little bit of a shift. Greg Jackson's is essentially a thing of the past outside of John Jones, who's a really successful fighter out of that camp, right? Then we've got guys like Fortis. We've got Elevation who are on the come up. Even Glory MMA, which, you know, there's a few fighters on this upcoming card fighting out of that team. Um, Another team that's been making some rounds and looking really good overall. So I definitely think there's going to be a bit of a shift as some of these older fighters end up retiring and getting phased out. And I think that's something we can look forward to. Maybe a very different dynamic in five years in the MMA landscape. 
I mean, it's always changing, man. I remember in the, in the black, when the black zillions were running, you know, running rough shot over everybody. Well, it's funny you mentioned black zillions because the black zillions essentially became hard knocks 365. They're still kicking ass. Oh, right, 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 right. Totally different guys though. Most of the heat, the guys who were all huge at, at black zillions all left. True. The, the big names, you're right. That's the thing that the black zillions, unlike AKA, they've always had those up and comers, right? So the Kamara Usman's have always been there. Gilbert Burns has always been there. It's just now it's their time. Now they're coming into their own and, and starting to destroy some of these guys. So yeah, the fact that they had uh, kind of this backup is what makes a difference. I also think that's the same difference with Bellator versus the UFC. The UFC always has stars in the come up, whereas Bellator doesn't focus as much on that. Even though they have some really good talent, they don't focus as much as that. They're, most of their promotion focuses on the old stars of yesteryear, which is part of the reason attraction, why. Yeah, what you, what you would call attraction fighters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're unable to keep traction from those events because a lot of those old fighters end up retiring, end up phasing out, end up going elsewhere. And then their new fighters are not pulling in the same kind of rating. So yeah, yeah I think the same goes for camps as for promotion. You got to have that up and coming talent ready to go as the current phase of top level athletes end up phasing out. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is that I do think if EFC wants to pay guys better, I think they have way too many fighters under contract. Um, I think I think if they sign, if they cut 30 or 40 percent of their fighters they could pay the ones that they do have more um it's not really going to impact like rankings we may get some more competitive fights and it'll make uh it'll make the other promotion stronger i think they should pay fewer fighters more they have like 700 guys under contract it's crazy yeah, I, th- I think they have somewhere between five and 600 fighters right now, but let's remember that a couple hundred of these fighters make under 50 grand a year. So they're not really wasting a whole lot of money on that, and they do need to fill out, what is it, 50-ish cards a year. So part of the leverage that the UFC has over their talent is that if you say no to a fight, they're going to put you on the shelf for eight months, nine months, right? And then they could have somebody else come into rotation. And so I don't think the UFC is keen to do that. They're going to lose some leverage in that situation. And I'm not sure they'll save that much money by cutting off the lower half of the roster. They would lose some leverage. I think that those, I think that those numbers add up, though, when you talk about have, you know, having guys that are ranked uh, you know, 20 to 30 uh, being able to, you know, to make a middle-class living. But I don't know. I'd have, to do, I'd have to run some calculations. Maybe I'll do that before the next show. Yeah, I will say quickly one thing. Dana Wade has always talked about how he likes to keep fighters, and you know he probably uses different language to present this. It sounds a little, little, uh, a little better to the palate, but he talks about how he likes to keep fighters at a fairly low pay because once you give them that payday, they become, they become hungry and they're asking for way more money, and and suddenly their their nose is high on this guy. And to his point, Nate Diaz, Jorge Masvidal, these are excellent examples of that once you give them a taste of serious money those guys have not given you an easy negotiation since so there is some truth to that but you know what fuck you dana pay these fighters yep no better note than that one to end the show on nikolai another good one in the books looking forward to boasting boasting about my victory next week we'll see two two and one in the last five nothing to brag about ten and three <laughs> Yeah, it's very selective. After it's said, those records are